0: Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List, the podcast of excellence. You know it, I know it, we all know how excellent we are. We are talking about Book 2, Chapter 30. Matilda took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Laura Wystitch said, It's hard to feel sympathy for any of these characters when they're being so ridiculous. Too right. They are being crazy. Uh, and I kind of love it. It's kind of funny and fun. How ridiculous they're being. I don't begrudge it at all. Um, you know, we've had some boring moments in the Hemingway list so far. We've had some great moments. But uh, i got to say, um, this is one of the more entertaining sections of one of the more entertaining books. So I'm enjoying it. Swim said the mum She said this. Interesting lines. Madame de Renal found reasons to do what her heart dictated. This young girl of the highest society let her heart be moved only when for good reasons she felt she ought to be moved. And he glimpsed this truth in the twinkling of an eye and in another instant rediscovered his courage. Louise seems to be a better woman than Matilda in Stendhal's eyes. Jan Brunt said, hoping for an exciting night at the opera. Will we have a mad attraction, like in War and Peace? A duel challenge, like in The American? Scorn and humiliation, like in Anna Karenina? Was the opera really as rollicking as we're led to believe in these novels? Sounds, like, sounds to me like an absolute blast. It always goes down at the opera, doesn't it? It seems to be the place for plot twists. Um, great opera scene, what is it, in War and Peace... Young Natasha who's just sort of I think she's like 13 so it's kind of like she's becoming a woman sort of thing she's no longer just sort of as a little kid she's starting to sort of you know grow up and and be a a woman Uh, and I think she's 13 or 14 or something like that and she goes to the opera for the first time and um, you kind of see it through her eyes Um, and what a great scene that is a great chapter all right. Um, enough about War and Peace. Let's keep reading, shall we? The, the red and the black. Uh, chapter thirty-one is called "Make Her Afraid." So this is your civilization's great achievement: you've transformed love into a commonplace affair, but Julian ran into Mademoiselle de La Mole's box. Immediately, he encountered Matilda's tear-filled eyes. She was crying unrestrainedly. The only people there were some lesser beings, the woman friend who had provided the box, and men of her acquaintance. Matilda placed her hand on Julian's. It was as though she had lost all fear of her mother. Almost suffocated by tears, she had only one word for him. Guarantees. Whatever happens, I must not speak to her, said Julian, himself full of emotion and trying so far as he could, and under the pretext provided by the luster which dazzles the third tier of boxes to hide his eyes with his hand. If I do speak, she can no longer be in doubt of the intensity of my feelings. The sound of my voice will betray me. All could still be lost." His emotional struggles were still crueler than in the morning. His soul, having had time to rouse itself, he dreaded to see Matilda's vanity provoked. Intoxicated by love and desire, he yet managed to refrain from saying a word. This is, in my opinion, one of the finest traits of his character. A man capable of such an effort of self-control should go so far. Sifata sinunt. Mademoiselle de La Mole insisted that they take Julian back to the hotel. Happily, it was pouring with rain, but the Marquise placed him opposite herself, talking to him incessantly in a way that would have prevented him from saying a word to her daughter. It was as though the Marquise was taking care of Julian's happiness, no longer fearful of losing everything through an excess of emotion. He surrendered to it with abandon. Dare I relate that, on regaining his room, Julian threw himself on his knees, took the love-letters given to him by Prince Korseroff, and smothered them with kisses. Oh, great man, what don't I owe to you? cried he in an extremity of enthusiasm. Oh, great—oh, I just read that line. Little by little, self-command returned. He compared himself to a general who had just half won a great battle— The advantage is assured, he said to himself, and is immense, but what will happen tomorrow all could be lost in an instant. With a passionate gesture he opened the memoirs dictated at St Helena by Napoleon and forced himself to read them for two long hours. His eyes alone were doing the reading, but that did not signify he compelled himself to go on. During this strange exercise his heart and mind, soaring to the highest possible plane, worked on unconsciously. This is a heart altogether different from that of Madame de Renal, he was saying to himself, but got no further. "'Make her afraid,' he cried suddenly, flinging the book away. "'The enemy will obey me only so far as I frighten him. That's when he daren't despise me.' He paced up and down, in his little room, ecstatic with joy. In fact, his rapture had in it more of triumph than of love. "'Make her afraid,' he said again proudly and had cause for pride. Even in her happiest days, Madame de Renal would always doubt that my love was equal to hers. Now this is a wayward daemon I must subdue, so I really must subdue it. He knew very well that the next morning Matilda would be in the library from eight o'clock onwards. He did not appear until nine, burning with love, but with his head, keeping control of his heart, Scarcely a moment passed without his reminding himself, keep her on edge, constantly on edge, all the time, with this great uncertainty, does he love me? Her brilliant position, the flatteries she hears on all sides, allow her to reassure herself a little too easily. He found her pale, calm, seated on the divan, but not in a condition, apparently, to make any kind of movement, she offered him her hand, Dear one, I have given offence. It is true. Possibly you are angry with me. Julian had not expected so simple a manner. He was on the point of betraying himself. You would like some guarantees, my dear, she went on, after a silence she had hoped to see broken. That's only fair. Carry me off, then. Let's hurry away to London. I will be lost for ever. Dishonored. She plucked up sufficient resolve to remove her hand from Julian's in order to cover her eyes all her soul's promptings towards modesty and feminine virtue had flooded back to her. "'Let it be so, then. Dishonor me,' she sighed at last. "'That will be a guarantee.' "'Yesterday,' thought Julian, "'I remained happy because I had their resolution to be hard on myself.' After a short silence, he was sufficiently in control of his feelings to reply in glacial tones, "'Once we are on the road for London, once dishonored,' to use your expression, Who is to say you would love me? That my presence in the post-chase won't seem to you an insult. I am not a monster. For people to think I have ruined you would only be fresh misery for me. Is not your position in the world that is is the obstacle? Unhappily, it is your own nature. Can you answer for yourself that you will love me for a week? Ah. If she loved me for a week, just one week, whispered Julian to himself, I would die of happiness. What does the future matter to me? What matters, life? And such happiness could start this very moment. If I chose, it depends on me alone. Matilda saw him looking thoughtful. So then, she said, grasping his hand, I'm completely and utterly unworthy of you. Julian took her in his arms, but the moment he did so, duty's iron hand gripped his heart. If she sees how much I adore her, I shall lose her, and before withdrawing from her embrace, he resumed all his manly dignity. On that and the following days he was able to conceal the intensity of his happiness. There were moments when he even denied himself the pleasure of taking her in his arms. At other moments a delirium of happiness drove him away beyond that which Prudence advised. In the garden there was a bower of honeysuckle planted there to conceal the ladder, and it was in the vicinity of this that he had often been used to stand, gazing at Matilda's distant shutters, lamenting her inconstancy. A great oak grew near it, and the trunk prevented his being noticed by indiscreet eyes. Passing with Matilda near this spot, so vividly reminiscent of the intensity of his sufferings, The contrast between past despair and present joys proved too much for his temperament. Tears welled into his eyes, and carrying his lover's hand to his lips, on this spot I dwelt in thoughts of you. Here I would gaze at yonder shutter and wait whole hours for the blessed moment when I would see it open by this very hand. His collapse was total in vivid colours he painted the intensities of his despair at that time colours too true to have been improvised in short asides, he told of the happiness that now had brought an end to these terrible pains great god what am i doing said julian suddenly coming to himself i will ruin myself in an excess of alarm he thought he already saw less love in mademoiselle de la Mole's eyes this was an illusion but julian's face quickly altered and took on a deathly pallor. His eyes dimmed for a moment, and an expression of hauteur, not devoid of malice, swiftly replaced that of the truest, most undissembling love. "'What's wrong, my dearest?' Matilda asked with tender concern. "'I'm lying,' said Julian, irritably. "'And I'm lying to you. I blame myself for it, and yet, God knows, I respect you enough not to lie.' You love me, you are devoted to me, and there's no need for me to trot out fine phrases just to please you. Good God, are all those delightful things you have been saying for the last two minutes just fine phrases? Yes, dear girl, and I blame myself severely for them. I invented them some time ago for a woman who loved me and who bored me. It is a failure of my temperament. I freely decry it in myself. Forgive me. Bitter tears flowed down Matilda's cheeks. Whenever I am driven into momentary distraction by some jarring little detail, went on Julian, my terrible memory, which I now curse, offers me this res- resource and I tend to abuse it. So I have done something to displease you without knowing, Matilda inquired with delightful naivety. I remember that passing near the honeysuckle one day. You picked a flower. Monsieur de Luce took it from you and you let him keep it. I was two feet away. Monsieur de Luce? That's impossible, replied Matilda, with the hauteur that came so naturally to her. That's not the sort of thing I do. I am sure of it, retorted Julian sharply. Oh, well, then, it is true, my dear, said Matilda, sadly lowering her eyes. She knew positively that for many months she had not permitted any such action from Monsieur de Luce. Julian gazed at her with indescribable tenderness. No, he said to himself, she doesn't love me any the less. That evening she reproached him, laughing, with his penchant for Madame de Fervax, a little citizen passionate about a would-be grand dame. Hearts of that sort are perhaps the only ones my Julian might not succeed in setting on fire. She has made a real dandy of you, monsieur, said she, playing with his hair. During during the time he had believed himself despised by Matilda, Julian had become one of the best-dressed men in Paris, yet he retained a superiority to other men of that kind. Once dressed, he gave his appearance, not another thought. A single thing riled Matilda. Julian continued to copy out his Russian letters and send them to the Marichal. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter down. These two ridiculous kids, oh my god. Have your say about those two ridiculous kids, oh my god. Over at the Hemingway List subreddit. Thanks for listening. See ya on the Tomozo.